0: Father God, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this day, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that this day when we remember Anzac, that we can think of your sacrifice, what you've done for us. Lord, help us to appreciate this. Lord, we just pray for Kanda now as he opens your word, that you be with him, that you open our hearts, Lord, and our minds, Lord, that we may take away something, Lord, that we can apply, Lord, that we can share with others we pray and ask for your wisdom, Lord, as he shares your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a privilege again to open the word of God and trust that as we look into the word of God this morning that we will be blessed in our hearts this morning. You know, one of my favorite ways of getting inspiration and encouragement is through hymns and hymn hymn writers' stories. I have a couple of books at home on hymn writers'. And I just love to hear, uh, read the stories of how some of these hymns were made. And one of these uh, hymns was, was by uh, a man called Robert Robinson in 1758. And this fits in a little bit in our message this morning. Robert's father died when he was eight years old. He was a very difficult boy and Mum had a hard time controlling him. At 14, she sent him to London to be a barber's apprentice. He got himself in a lot of trouble in London, but by God's grace he was saved at the age of 20 in a Methodist church in London where George Whitfield was preaching. And later he ministered to many Christians in London and he pastored some churches in London. He wrote two hymns in his life to express his joy in his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And one of these hymns that I have been reading and I've got some inspiration from this, which I'd like to quote, And the hymn is, Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Listen to this third line. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious measure sung by flaming tongues above. Oh, the vast, the boundless treasure of my God's unchanging love. It is said that later on in life, you wandered away from the Lord. And this second verse reflects that. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He is my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Some years later, Robert was riding in a a, stagecoach with a woman. Uh, who did not know who he was, and asked him if he knew the hymn, Come, thou fount of every blessing. And he replied, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand world if I had them to enjoy the feeling that I had then. The woman replied, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. What a great God we have. In spite of all our failures and our, our downfalls and all that, God's mercy never ends. The streams of mercy is ever flowing. And I wonder if that feeling of Robert is our experience. I certainly can relate to that. I can relate to the time and in my life I backslided, not so much openly, but in my heart. And, uh, and that happens. And that happens. But forgiveness is available. The streams of mercy is never flowing. There is a way of recovery. There is the way of bouncing back from that situation and renewing our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, our brother Gary took us so nicely through James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, where we saw the, the cause of worldliness. We saw the consequences of the worlden- worldliness. And this morning I would like us to look at from verses 7 to 10 and look at the cure for worldliness. What is the cure for us to bounce back when we fail? And, and, and mind you, we are going to fail. We are going to fail tomorrow. We are going to fail next week. We always fail. But there is always a way of bouncing back with God. Streams of mercy, never ending. And that is our Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ. So my subject this morning is is drawing near to God, and the question is how. How do we do that? How do we draw near to God? And let's read from, by the way, uh, my wife had been gossiping this morning, and when I came here, my brother Gary came to me and said, I heard you were up at 4 o'clock this morning. Yes, I was up at 4 o'clock this morning going through this and pouring my heart to my heart to the Lord. So nothing is secret, Gary. Keep it to yourself. Now, it is so easy to drift away from the Lord, isn't it? Let's not kid ourselves. Let's let's be honest about it. It is so easy to drift away from the Lord. There are so many temptations, so many distractions, so many attractions that come to our way and steals our heart from the Lord. It steals my heart from the Lord. It may not be, like I said, an outward, outward thing for others to see, but inwardly, we know that we are not right with God. And I'm sure each one of us in our Christian walk have experienced that. There was a downtime in my life before I got married, when I went away from the Lord, and it was so difficult to come back. It was so difficult, you were kind of ashamed to come back. But then, by the grace of God, I was able to walk back to the chapel in Lothoka. When we celebrate the road supper, one purpose of that communion is to examine ourselves. See if we have displeased the Lord recently in our lives in any way. And it is quite evident from James's writing that many of the readers of this epistle were not walking with the Lord. And James is very, very strong here, and he calls them sinners and double-minded. i just read uh, verse 7 to 10. James is saying, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Sometimes some preachers get up on the pulpit and they preach, and we say, oh, they're too hard. He's too hard. But look at what James is saying here. Straight down the line that what we should do to bounce back into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls them sinners and double-minded. These people, they both, they wanted the world and they wanted God. And you can't have both. You've got to have one or the other. And be, but these readers of James's, they wanted a bit of this and a bit of that. James gave us the pattern for, for personal revival and he is pretty tough in the way he writes here. James has some 54 imperatives in his writings, and 10 of those are in these verses that we just read. There are 10 imperatives, there are 10 commands in this verse that James gives out for us to follow. In the church there was conflict, there was quarrels, there was strife, and James very strongly opposes that, And he's laying the ground rules for the cure at how they could recover from that situation. And so he says in in verse 7 here, he says, Submit therefore to God. In the light of what you guys have been doing in the church, you've been bickering and conflicting against one another. In the light of that, submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. The word therefore here indicates that something is not right. There's something not right in the church. Incidentally, don't look at the right-hand side. That's for the thongans. And uh, therefore, something wasn't right. There was worldliness. There was fighting. There was hatred. There was bitterness. And James is saying there's only one kiwa, and that kiwa is each one of you submit to God. Therefore, he says, submit to God. You know, submitting to God is a oppressive obedience, isn't it? It's unresisting, yielding, obedience to God and His Word. When we submit, we yield unreservedly to, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting is when we come and we acknowledge that our life is in the will of the Lord, we acknowledge that He is the Master and we give ourselves to Him. Charles Finney, the great revivalist, said that revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. You want a spiritual revival in your heart? The first step is that you submit to God. When we submit to God inwardly, each one of us will experience that kind of revival that we need. Submission of obedience is to bring our will under His control our will under His control, to recognize that God has the best for our lives. Here are two illustrations of the meaning submission. Firstly, submission was originally a military term. The Greek word means to get in your proper rank and follow orders. At this time of the year when we celebrate uh, Anzac Day, a soldier submits himself to his superior and he follows orders. And if he doesn't that, do that, he will not come out of this situation alive. If he if does his own way, if he does his own job, and then he could, could get killed. And in any any military operation, the soldier soldiers must fight as one. They must fight as a unit. And therefore, it is imperative that every one of them obey the orders and submit to their commanders. Now, the word "secondly," the word "submit" is used in Philippians, 5, chapter five, verse twenty-two, in the marriage relationship. It says, "Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord." And we know that marriage is an illustration of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and we are to submit to His will. And it is significant that James is so strongly here, calls these believers adulteresses. They were adulteresses. It, it is a metaphorical description of the spiritual unfaithfulness that these people had in their lives. And, and, and James's Jewish readers would have been familiar with that because in the Old Testament, the unfaithful Israel is, 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 is often described as spiritual harlots, aren't they? They were turning their backs on Jesus Christ and loving the world instead. You know, for many of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to reaffirm our submission to God. We need to see where we stand when it comes to me and my Lord Jesus Christ. And for many of us, there was a time, there was a special time in our lives, wasn't it? I can recall a time in my life when I was broken down and I I submitted again to God. I brought myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and I, I reaffirmed my submission to Him. It might have been as a youth camp, it could have been in a revival meeting, or it could have been in a personal prayer life when we committed and recommitted our life to Jesus Christ. And we need to look at that. We need to revisit that again and see where we stand in our submission to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we living in that submission? And if, it, if, 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 if you're not, be honest with yourself, and we need to check ourselves out and just see where we walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Submission is not only a passive obedience, it is also an active opposition. In verse 2, it says to resist the devil. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James in the middle of verse 7 says to resist the devil. James believed that the devil had a part in the waywardness of these Christians. James believed that the devil was active among them and this is why there was problem in the church. And the devil always focuses on drawing you away from the Lord, doesn't he? He's got no authority over our soul because the day we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin. But the devil will still come around and try to... Is that a bit too loud? I'm having a lot of feedback. It's a bit too loud, Jonathan. Now the devil wants to ruin our fellowship. The devil wants to ruin our fellowship. So we submit to God ready to obey and trust him. Now what does it mean to resist the devil? The word resist means literally to take our stand against to take our stand against the devil. We hear of criminals resisting arrest they, they even though they are criminals they are taking a stand against the the law they want they don't want to be to be arrested and to resist the devil simply means that, that we take our stand against him. He will attack with temptation, and when he does, we must be ready to stand fast and resist him. He's always out to get us. There's a story told of a reverend who was on his push bike with his Bible under his arm and he was going to church. A couple of boys met him on the way, and they thought, oh, let's, let's have some fun with him. So they go to him and say, reverend, if the devil came here in person, who would he catch? And the reverend said, of course he'll catch me because I see he caught you two already. He said, the devil's out there trying to discredit us. He's trying to attack us. He will attack with temptation. And when he does that, we must be ready to hold fast in the Lord. He'll attack with the world. He'll attack in the flesh. He will attack with his demons. And and, and, and don't, don't you ever think that he's not capable of doing that. He's always trying to trip us. And he knows our weak spot. He knows our weak points. And he will trip us in that area of our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, 27 says, Neither give place to the devil. Resist the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Do not give the the devil an opportunity to invade your lives. For example, if you have no danger of getting drunk, you will have no danger of getting drunk if you don't drink alcohol at all. Now, I, I, I know a friend, and actually he's a family member, and he drinks. And he said to me, he said, the day I get drunk, I will stop drinking. The day I get drunk, I will stop drinking. Is that resisting the devil? That is playing in the hands of the devil, isn't it? That is playing in the hands of the devil. So if you have no danger, you've got no danger of getting drunk if you don't drink alcohol. What about you will not commit immorality if you avoid certain compromising situation. The secret is don't give the devil an inch. Resist the devil. Stop him on his track. And the only way we can do that is in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he will attack you with slender. In fact, the word devil means slender, slenderer. He slenders God to man. That is what he did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He goes to Eve and said, has God said it? Has God said that? He was slendering the character of God. And he was suggesting to Eve that God was hiding something good from them. And of course, we know the story so well that Eve fell for it and, uh, and sinned against God. He also slanders men to God. God said to the devil, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none righteous like him in this world. Satan said to God, does Job, Job save you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Have you not protected him? He slanders men to God. What about lies? Does he attack us with lies? You better believe it. Yes, he does. The devil is a deceiver. Resist him when he stands your ways with lies and attack. How many people we know that ran well with God, that ran well with Jesus Christ. They were preachers on the pulpit and today they're out there in the world and they deny the existence of God. Now I know people like that who deny the very existence of of God. Now James is saying that if we resist the devil, what is the result? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was tempted, he quoted scriptures to the devil, and we read, and the devil left him. The great preacher D.L. Moody knew of a saint who, who really knew how to submit to God and resist the devil. There was a man, the story says, there was a man in Dundee, Scotland, who has fallen and broke his back when he was just 15. He had lain on his bed for 40 years and could not move without a great deal of pain. Not a day passed in his life without acute suffering. But day after day the grace of God has been granted him. And when Mr. Moody was in his chamber, it seemed as if he was nearer heaven as he could be on earth. When Mr. Moody saw him, he thought he must be beyond the reach of the tempter. And he asked him this question. Doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God and think that he's a hard master? Oh, yes, he said. He does try to tempt me. I lie here and see my old schoolmates driving along. And Satan says, if God is so good, why does he keep you in here all these years? You might have been a rich man riding in your carriage. Then I see a man who was young when I when, walk by, in perfect health. And Satan whispers to me, If God loved you, couldn't God kept you from breaking your neck? And what do you do, Mr. Moody asked? Ah, oh, he said, I just take him to Calvary. And I show him Christ. I point out those wounds in his hands and feet and side and say, Doesn't he love me? And the fact is, he got such a scare there 1900 years ago that he cannot stand it and leaves every time. This bedridden saint of God had not much trouble with doubts. He was too full of the grace of God. And so we read, submit to God, resist the devil. Now let's look at the next step. Draw near to God, verse 8. How do we bounce back? Draw near to God. Now the command to draw near to God implies that we are not close to God as we ought to be. Why would James say draw near to God if they were, they were near to God? And it implies that we're not here as we ought to be. It is so easy to drift away from God, folks. It may not be an open for others to see, but you know if you have drifted away from God in your heart. If you don't feel as close to God as you used to be, guess who's moved? Guess who's moved? Jesus said, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. So James tells us in the later part of verse 8 that we must do to draw near to God. What we must do to draw near to God. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And here is the recipe of drawing near to God. He says, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Our grandson worked with me for a while, about six weeks. I took him to work at Eagle Air, there's two two kitchen, an engineer's kitchen and there is an administration kitchen. I took him to the engineer's kitchen, he never wanted to go back there, he said the engineers don't wash their hands, I see them eating the sandwich with greasy hands. And my wife said, oh your granddad used to do the same. He never went back there. Now that is not, the, not what James is talking about here, it's not having clean hands when you eat your food. Many times in the Bible, the hands are the organ and symbol of moral principle, isn't it? It's a symbol of moral principle. So in order to renew it to God, we must forsake our act of sin and get the daily cleansing because streams of mercies are ever flowing for us. And this of cleansing has to be done over and over again. And that's what it means to keep our hands clean. When we wash our hands, they will stay only clean for a little while. They get dirty again. And it's exactly like that with our life. When we are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin. We are not saved from the presence of sin. We live in this world. We do sin. We see sin. And the only time that will be gone from our lives is when we're in glory with millions on high singing the praises of God. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4 says, Who may ascend into the hills of the Lord, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Purify your hearts, James is saying. Purify your hearts. Matthew fifteen nineteen to 20. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornications, theft, false witnesses, slenders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with dirty hands does not defile the man. When the heart is wrong, nothing can be right. And the question is, how do we purify our heart? Confess your sins. Bring them all to Jesus. Lay them at His feet. He will take care of them. And we need to do that daily as we walk the Christian life. John 1.7, but if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then the second thing we see of drawing near to God is to feed your life on the Word of God. Bible reading, hearing the Word of God in worship, giving yourself to prayer, witnessing. These are recipe for growth and these are recipe for drawing near to God. Keep that family altar alive, folks. Keep that personal altar alive in your life. And that's the only way we can draw near to God. You might say, what if I do these things? And James is saying he will draw near to you. Draw near to your God, confess your sins, feed your life on the word of God, and God will draw near to you. Let me quickly share one last step which may be most difficult in drawing near to God. Be miserable. That's that's a hard command, isn't it? Be miserable. Be broken before God. Be broken before God. You all know that before a horse can be of any use, the horse needs to be broken before we can use that horse to do anything for us. It must be brought to a place of submission. Even so, before you and I can be of any use to God, we must be broken of our self-will and pride, broken before God, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is human nature to defend ourselves and to deny that there is anything wrong with us. First of all, sorrow for sin must begin in our life. James says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The the sorrow mentioned here is self-imposed. This is an evidence of repentance in our lives, an evidence of, of coming back to God. And this is probably the strangest command in the Bible. And he's not saying that we are to be miserable all the time, but he's saying that when we realize that we have sinned against a holy and a loving God, we are to experience misery in our heart. Paul accepts this in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He calls himself a wretched man. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. The inward feeling of the wretchedness which grows out of a sense of sin, sin in your life. And Paul, the great apostle, called himself the wretched man that I am. When we come before God like that and acknowledge that we have sinned, we can bounce back into fellowship with God again. And verse 7 says to mourn. And James indicates here this inward sense of wretchedness and sinfulness should lead to mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then we come to weep. Time's running away. James moves on to external evidence of this sorrow. When we weep, it's an ex- external evidence of the sorrow of the sin that is in our lives. George Whitfield was preaching to some coal miners outside the coal mine. As they listened to him of their sin against God and the love of Jesus Christ for them, he could see white lines forming on their faces from the tears of repentance washing away the coal dust from their faces. Now that's not the kind of teaching you will hear from some televangelists that we have. I'd like to name some of them, but I won't. You don't hear that. One televangelist across the ditch said, What's the point of coming to church and going home all doom and gloom? In other words, don't offend anybody. And my style is if I don't offend anybody, I'm not getting across. Don't offend anybody. And that is like filling a bottle with poison, deadly poison, and putting a Coca-Cola label on the bottle. The more attractive you make the label outside, the more dangerous is the poison inside the bottle. We need to preach. The Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as George Whitfield did that day with the coal miners. And then, verse nine, at 9, the laughter of sin must cease. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is not saying that we are not to laugh, but it would seem that the person referred to instead of suitable sorrow on the account of sin gave themselves to entertainment and laughter. Be miserable and mourn and weep that your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gleam. And I believe I should not laugh at sin, but rather you ought to mourn. We should not laugh at the filthy humor of the world that we see on the media today. We should not think also that laughter is is wrong. Proverbs 17.22 says a merry heart does good like a medicine. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of laughter, but there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. When you are committing sin, it definitely is not the time to laugh. It is a time to weep and sorrow over sin. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? To humbling ourselves before the Lord is simply saying to take our proper place before the Lord. That when we come down and we humble ourselves before the Lord. With God, the way up is down. Jesus said, He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And the verb for humble yourself is passive, meaning offer no opposition. Perhaps it should read, allow yourself to be humbled before the Lord. God must be the one who is to humble us, but we must give our consent. We must surrender ourselves to him if we want to humble ourselves before the Lord. He himself humbled himself, didn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ, he became obedient unto death, even The death of the cross. Now why should we humble ourselves and be be willing to be humble and broken before the Lord? James tells us here that if we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, He will exalt you. He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will lift you up. And we need to come down to this position where we can... Humble ourselves. Doubts and fear often, often drag us down. But as long as we seek to draw near to God and keep our account short with God and humble ourselves before the Lord and confess our sins and read the word, we can draw near to God and be in close fellowship with him. Charlotte Elliot was an invalid for many years. She had a desire to help in raising funds for a girl's school, but she was too ill, she was too weak. She felt useless, and the inner distress caused her to begin doubting her faith in Christ. And one day she got down with a pen and paper and wrote these words, and this is something that we need to do as well. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The crux of a distress, being an invalid and not being able to do things, perhaps it has been expressed in these words of verse number two. Just as, just as I am, thou tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fighting within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. You know, when we fail, like these people did here, there's a cure for us there. And when we realize that we need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, forgiveness is always available. The streams of mercy are still flowing. Are you feeling low in your life for Jesus? Is there anything in your life that has broken that fellowship? Will you say, O Lamb of God, I come and bounce back to Him, recover and come back to fellowship with Him? Perhaps you have never given your life to Jesus Christ. You are still not a believer. Would you say, Oh Lamb of God, I come. Come and trust Him and give your life to Him and be saved. And then one day you also will be able to shout, With the millions on high. May God help us with these thoughts here today. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hand, purify your hearts, be miserable, and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to learn this lesson. It is so clear in the word for us how we can bounce back, how we can recover from the dark paths of sin. Thank you for the open door. Thank you for the streams of mercy that's ever flowing for us. Thank you for forgiveness which is available to us. Father, we come before you today and pray that you will search our lives, search our hearts, Father, and see if there is any wicked way in us. Lord, cleanse us and bring us back into fellowship with you. We thank you again for this day. Thank you for the time we've had remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you as we've been considering that there is no second death for us because there was one who was willing to die in our stead. So take us to our homes in safety, Father. Watch over us this day and throughout the week and we pray that you would help us ever singing your praise, glorifying Jesus Christ in our lives. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.